Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Tom Woods Show, episode 2439. Like, what am I trying to prove here? So glad to have Michael Malice back on the show. I mean, at this point, I don't even need to introduce this guy to you, but you do know him as the author most recently of, you can see right behind him, The White Pill. He's the host of You're Welcome, and he is a guest on basically every podcast that's ever existed. So, Michael, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Tom. We'll get to this a little bit later, but look what I have here. I have a copy of the book Everyone Wants, but so few can have, which is the (laughs) Harvey Picard graphic novel, Ego and Hubris. I don't know how to describe this book, but what's interesting about it is, does it end in 2007? Well, it was published in 2006, so it doesn't end in 2007. Okay, so 2000, all right. So in other words, we're barely getting started, really, in terms of what happens to you later. What's even funnier is if you read the contemporaneous reviews, how they're all like, this guy's a loser, he's going nowhere, this is like his peak. It's just really, really funny. (laughs) Well, the thing is, so we've been, because my wife's never read it, so we've actually been reading it together. So this is my second time through it. And this is a story about a guy who so impressed the author that he just had to write a book about you. And I don't know, I said, but impressed is not the right word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. Left an impression. Left an impression. Yeah, Left an impression. <laughs> so this is the part of the Michael Malice story that most people don't know about. Like Some people know that you were on Cash Cab. That's an That's amazing correct. clip. And when people discovered that, they went berserk. My greatest achievement. Yeah, it is so, especially the parts that they didn't air that you told me about later. You know what? Let me ask you, I'm going to ask you a question that was on Cash Cab that they cut. And you, you are, is your PhD in American history? Yeah, but now you're going to get me in trouble. All right, what was no, it? No, because they had to cut the question because it was so stupid. And I'll ask it for you and I'll show that even someone who's a PhD in American history wouldn't get this right. Okay. Name cities that have been capitals of the United States. You mean, but aren't any longer? Correct. Oh, 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 of the whole country? Yes. Okay. So Philadelphia? Right. Let's see, what would, have, what would there have been before? Well, obviously, Washington, D.C., does that count? Right. All right, what am I forgetting before? Is, are we thinking like Articles Confederation time? Just throw them out. I don't know, what am I missing? First of all, you're missing New York, which is a big one. Okay, sorry. Okay, <laughs> But the fact is, I started rattling off like every city that was a city at the time. And what they had counted was when the Continental Congress was fleeing the British, like Lancaster was the capital for a day. So it's just all these bizarre little towns. And it's like, this doesn't count. These are, you know, that's nitpicking. Nobody would answer that way. No. So they cut the question and they went to the other lightning round. Because I, because the thing is, I can only imagine they're at the control booth. I name like 100 cities. I mean, how many cities were there at the time, right? And I still don't get it right. So it's just like, okay, like they didn't give me an explanation, but that surely was what it was. That if I named like literally every city almost that was a city at the time and I still don't get it right, something's way off. This isn't just trivia. This is just crazy. Well, they did give you a question where I think it was name the top five most searched political That was the substitute question because it was name the 10 cities that were capitals of the US. It was name the 10 politicians that were most searched for in the previous year. Right, and you had to come up with at least five of them. I think it was 10. Was it a 10? Well, it might have been, like, you could choose five of the 10 as long as you got five. You didn't have to name the top five. I know your cash cab appearance better than you. 
Uh, you, okay, I haven't watched it. Maybe you're right. <laughs> I thought it was the top 10. Well, it might have been, but you didn't have to name all 10, as long as you got five out of the 10. So you did exactly the same thing with that question. No, you it was more than five. figures like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, and then, because I was stuck in Washington, I never thought of governors. That was my big flaw. So I'm talking about Reagan and Gorbachev as if they were being searched. But you got, you got that one barely. Yeah, yeah. Just under the wire. Well, anyway, the point is that that's pretty much what people know about you. And this is not primarily where I intended to go with this episode, but you were born, you were on Cash Cab, and now you're on every podcast in the world. And, and so I think there are things that we could fill in. Because, by the way, not everybody is going to be able to get a copy of this. It's just a fact. It's a long story why it can't be reprinted. So it's also expensive. It's on eBay. You get it for like 150 bucks. I think now it's dropped in value as well. It's my, as dropped my, in value. Wow. Yeah, I'm a has-been, Tom. As you've gotten more in demand, it's gone down. Because people read it, they go, I don't want this garbage in my house. <laughs> they feel like, let me get rid of it. It's like curse. Well, you know, one thing about reading this book, it reminds me of something about you, that when you're dealing with somebody you don't respect, that you consider just beneath contempt, you let them know. Not always, but it's very obvious when Michael Malice is unhappy with somebody. And there are things you do is to people obvious, in this Tom? book. The things you do to people in this book is... <laughs> Just unbelievable. Not always obvious, Tom. <laughs> Fair enough. But at the same time, when you have somebody Wait, who hold on, Hold on. I'm yeah. going to interrupt you. Okay. It's not people. It's people in positions of power who are trying to use that power. So if someone's oh, yeah. just some random jerk, then I don't care because I'm a random jerk. But if someone is a, a security guard or a principal or a boss... And they're using that clout when I regard them as beneath contempt, then I have an issue. So that could include a professor. That could include somebody who happens to Teacher. be above you at work. Yes. But yet boss. is not above yeah. you in any other way. Correct. And that's not unique to me. Like very many people, I, I would bet literally 90% plus of this, of the audience here, has had experiences when they have a boss or a teacher or a coach who's like, this person is just flat out a simpleton. And not just a simpleton, but a bad person. It's not just that they're slow. It's that they're just malevolent in some way. Yeah, well, so as, as we're reading and as you're describing the situations that you're in and the people that you're dealing with, I'm thinking, oh, gosh, what, what is malice going to do to this poor soul? But then on the other hand, the thing is, you remember what, well, here's really kind of where I was going to go. It's 2024, so happy new year. But do you realize 2024 marks 10 years since we met? We first met on the Tom Woods show. You came on as a guest. And I flat out could not believe your last name was Malice. So you might not remember this, but I actually said to you, how do you pronounce your last name? And you said, like, incredulous, Malice. And I thought, okay, so like it's not Italian or something? It's not like Malice? It really is Malice. So then we had the episode. Then we talked afterward. Then I met you in New York and all that. So it's been 10 years. And in that 10 years, an awful lot has happened to you personally and professionally to American society, American politics, the universities, and so on. And so I actually want to unpack that a little bit, if, if I may. Sure. So first of all, so now we're, so when we met, it was still eight years after this book had been Correct. published. yeah. And at that time, I mean, you had people who followed you, but you were not the, like, crazy phenomenon you are now. And in I fact... I don't know crazy phenomenon, but okay. Well, I mean, people know who you are. Like sure, a lot, sure. A lot of the time. Like, sure. I can drop your name, and I feel like if they don't know you, then I don't know why I'm talking. And I'm sure you do as much as you can. <laughs> I, did, I did just the other day in my episode with Adam Curry. And of course, Adam Curry knows you. 
So anyway. Well, he's been on the show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's been on Minds. Good man. Yeah, so good guy. We, you and I, you might not remember this, but you and I did an episode of my show where we talked about how to build your audience. And I was teaching you. <laughs> so, but yet now you've gotten to a point where I know it depends to some degree on the guest, but you have a sure. show where you release it and just overnight, you've got a quite a large number of views. You're very much in demand. What do you attribute that to? That's a great question. And I wish I had, let me think about this because I want to give a good answer because that's a very serious and kind of deep question that would help a lot of people. I think several things. First of all, I think consistency is something that is very useful. If I, and this works for you very well, right? Like a lot of your audience knows that, hey, if I've got nothing to do, or even if I've got like a workout, going for a walk, going for a drive, I have a new episode of the Tom Woods show in the can, and it's going to be something that I'm going to get something from. At the very least, I'm going to have engaging conversation with people who talk about issues that I care about. So that's a big deal. It's like consistency slash reliability. Yeah. I think that's one. I think people enjoy, I get this a lot from my audience, is that a lot of my audience, you would think are like basement dwelling troglodytes, and they're not. A lot of them are family men and women who have jobs and careers, who have to go into an office or even just open their own store, but they have to keep their mouths shut because they're surrounded by people who are just bad people or have consequences for making their views heard. So when they see me being vituperative toward people who deserve it, they get a kick out of it and they want to support that. And yeah. I think I'm pretty good and I think I'm better than you at this. And I'm not saying it's a competition at being nasty in an effective way. You're not a nasty person. You're a very informative person. You're extremely articulate. You're like, when you give a speech, you like lay out an argument with historical information in a coherent way, but you're not going for the jugular, right? I think you and I probably hate these people. And I don't mean just for strangers. I mean like people who push the power, who use that power for like nefarious ends. I think you and I hate them probably equally. But I am taking more glee and perhaps I'm better at hitting them where it hurts. And maybe this is kind of my Soviet upbringing. I don't know where it is. So I think people enjoy that. They enjoy the ruthlessness. I think people tend to, a lot of times I get like what Howard, you know, Howard Stern, who was like a hero of mine growing up, who's now degenerated more than literally anyone else I know, maybe other than Penn Jillette, in terms of where they were and where they are now. Oh, yeah. In terms of, you know, my respect for them and, and, the thing is that you know that they know better. Colbert is another one. You know he knows better. Is that when people listen to Stern, it was like, I can't wait to hear, hear what this guy has to say next. So I think that is something people enjoy. And I think people also like that I, despite my prickly personality, if I do think you are worthy of respect, I do treat you, maybe there's jokes, but with a degree of respect. So because of this, I have just in December, I'm sure I'm the only person who could say this. I had both Megan McCain and Alex Jones on my show. And they both knew that they were going to be denigrated. And they both knew they were going to be challenged in a positive way, which they were, maybe not as much as other people would. But to be able to have that big Venn diagram, I think people like that as well. I want to elaborate on why you've been so successful, if I may. So, okay. I want to build on what you said about people appreciating you going for the jugular. It's not just the going for the jugular, of course. 
It's the people against whom you're going for the juggler. You're going, oh, yes. you're going up against what we might think of as in the pre-social media days, untouchables. You know, yeah. People who don't have to answer to peons like you and me. Yes. And then all of a sudden you get, you know, however many years ago, Luke Radowski walking around with his camera, talking to the Henry Kissinger half a dozen times. Like, yeah. This isn't supposed to be allowed. And then yeah. you in particular going after people who, who feel like they should be above all that. No, no one's going to do X, Y, or Z to them or bring up something embarrassing about their backgrounds. And all of a sudden, it's a completely different world. But secondly, there are a lot of people out there who have... Now, your views are, I think, a little bit more nuanced than, let's say, some libertarian schmuck somewhere. But... You mean Dave? <laughs> I was trying to, trying to be generous. But all the same, there are other people who have views similar to yours. Sure. But it's very hard to put you in any kind of a box because of your manner of expression, because sometimes you do have an opinion that surprises us. And also because, for example, you'd show up on Dave Rubin and you're wearing Tulsi Gabbard's getup. She but, was wearing my getup. Yeah, th exactly, right. That was the thing. But you, you walk out there with no comment, like waiting for him to comment on it. Nobody else does this. So you basically, you made yourself into somebody nobody had ever seen before. You weren't just another guy with a podcast. Well, I think what I enjoy a lot as someone who consumes media is I like it when someone is putting on a show for me. Like that shows that they're really putting in the effort. And I also especially like it as someone who goes into these rabbit holes and does these deep dives when someone does things just for the hardcore fans. Like if there's a video game and there's like secret level that you really had to play the other, the first four in the series to find this level. And you know, that's just for us. That's kind of like a little love letter. I live for stuff like that, right? We're like, you know, knowing that if you collected the first series of Star Wars figures, that Yak Face is the one you want or the Vinyl Cape Jawa. Like little things like this, that's really inside baseball. I love that. So I try to do that as much as possible. And it also works in two ways because... I'm not trying to build an audience as broad as possible. I want sleeper cells. So whenever you do dress up in non-conventional ways, for a lot of people, you hear, well, I can't take anyone seriously who's dressed shirtless on Dave Rubin with the blonde streak in the hair. Great. If this is your cost of entry, someone's clothing and their appearance that you're not going to hear their ideas, you're going to be of no use to me when poop hits the fan. Because right away, you're just going to be going on complete non-essentials and you're not going to be able to have any understanding of anything from my experience and opinion. So if I can immediately have you alienated from my audience, it's going to save me a lot of time. And that I think has been very effective in that you have this barrier to entry as opposed to the usual model, which is how to build your audience. Well, you don't want everyone in your audience. And a lot of times, a lot of people in the audience are more of a cost than a benefit. Like that... 19th person at the party, you know, could be some kind of horrible, hopeless person taking a poop on the floor. He's driving away the other 18. And, you know, the, by the way, that's sometimes business advice that people give when building an audience for a product or a service, let's say. They'll say, um, you know, you want to, you don't want to be polarizing. But see, for me, I do want to be polarizing. I want to build an audience that is my audience. I don't want to build an audience I have to tiptoe around. I want right. my audience, and I want an audience that is on fire for what I'm doing. I don't want lukewarm people 
I don't want people who are barely hanging on by a thread. You're or not selling who, cola. Like exactly. if you're selling cola, it doesn't, you know, you want to appeal to everyone. Right. If you're selling something that's ideological and specific, you need to separate the wheat from the chaff. I've had people write to me because, you know, I, I have an email list that I write to every weekday. And I've had people write to me and say, you know, I don't like your take on such and such. And if you say this one more time, I'm unsubscribing. I unsubscribe them for them. Of course. I'm not going to let you threaten me. <laughs> like, I don't need you on my list. Tom, how is it a threat? Like, what's the cost? Yeah, yeah you're doing me a favor. <laughs> yes. A, a pain in the neck wants to leave my list? Boo-hoo. All right. So I think that is exactly... But, but also, I mean, it's not quite a chicken and, and egg thing. But as you've gotten appearances on larger and larger shows, more and more people find out about you, which gets you on even bigger shows. And then that, in turn, translates into more people in your base audience. So I want to say something, though. You know how... A lot of these like blue pill lefties, when they talk about Trump's business success, they'll be like, well, his dad left him like $3 million. And if you ask them, do you think it's easy or would you be able to turn $3 million into right. a billion? They say yes. And it's like, then why do millionaires exist at all? Yeah. Like, how is anyone a millionaire a thousandfold? So I think a lot of people think when people are not successful in some ways, they, they always tend to find there's two ways. What am I doing wrong? Or it's everyone else who's doing something wrong. I'm, yeah. you know, like, and whenever I haven't achieved something I want to achieve, I always look at what am I doing that could be improved? Or I'll ask people who have done it successfully, hey, what can I do that you're doing that would help me improve with that? That's just a mechanism for me. So the way you just said it, I, I know you did not mean this at all, but I just want to clarify for the audience. It's not at all organic that if someone does Tom Woods today, next week they're on, let's suppose, whatever the next level up, and then they're next level up, and then they're on Rogan. Like, you have to be able to do well at each of these steps. Now, I know you didn't imply anything to the contrary, but I do want that to be very clear to the audience. There's many people who are on, let's suppose, Ruben, who didn't get on Rogan, and there's many people who are like on my show who didn't get on Ruben. So it's not at all. And the other thing which is amazing to me, and this sounds snobby, but it's just the truth, the number of people who have hit me up to be like, hey, can you get me on Rogan? With oh. like no credentials of the name. It's, but the thing I, I, I think to myself is, why don't you ask me, hey, can you get me on Tom Woods? No disrespect to you, but if this is someone who's a libertarian pushing a product and I'm, I was your best man at your wedding, it's going to be A, a lot easier for me to get on the phone with you and it's going to be a lot easier for me to sell that to you yeah. because it's like a one-hour show, we're talking about one topic. Rogan is going to be two or three hours all over the place. I don't know him like I know you. And I can't predict that you'd be good in that show. I don't mean you'll be just anybody, but they don't think in these terms. They always go for the top. It's just yep. like, you have to put in the work. And incidentally, just the other day, apparently I had unjustly blocked somebody, a uh, social media block. And because it was you writing to me saying, I can vouch for this person, I immediately lifted the block. Yeah. Because you could just get right. Yeah. So I want to give an example of exactly what you're, kind of the opposite of what you're talking about. Max Boot. Now, Max Boot, I guess, left the GOP because he doesn't like Trump or whatever it is. But he wrote a book about something like why I left the Republican Party. And he, because <laughs> he's I'm Max sorry, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about that Willy Wonka gif where he's like, no, come back, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, he managed, because of his name, to get on every show you can imagine. I mean, huge shows. Got on them all. And the book absolutely tanked. Of course. It didn't go anywhere. He had every possible advantage. 
But if you can't leverage the advantage, it's not a, so it's not a matter of my book isn't selling because I'm not getting enough media. That can be an explanation. Sure. But some people will get the media and then the book does even worse. <laughs> I really don't. Now I know I don't want this thing. Yeah. I mean, in the books, he got what he wanted. He got his advance. It's the publishers who are just, you know, this is why I'm so, this is a good segue. This is why I'm so hopeful about where books are going because there are no consequences for that publisher who signed Max Boot and gave him a pretty nice advance, right? That yeah. editor is not going to have his neck on the chopping block because they can say to their board with a straight face, look, we got him on every show. The book just underperformed. So publishing doesn't even think in terms of sales. Like their model is really outdated and backward and crazy. And that's why I encourage people who have any kind of an audience to do what you know, you've done and what I've done is to put out yourself because you're going to save a year to market. You're yeah. going to get six times as much money. You're not going to get any money up front. That's fair, unless you do maybe some kind of GoFundMe. But the book is your own and you don't have to deal with these headaches of these bureaucracies. And the only reason they're signing you anyway, in general, I would say over 90% of the time, is if you have an audience and it, right. it's called a platform and a demonstrated capacity to get your book in different places. And it's like, but if I have that, what do I need you for? Right, exactly. For the most part, like if you publish with a traditional publisher like Doubleday, they've got a certain handful of books that they really are going to put their marketing on. Yes. Behind. But it's not all of them. It's not even close right. to a majority of them. So right. for most of the authors, you really do have to rely on what you've built yourself. And then as you say, then the question becomes, is this just a vanity project to get my book in the bookstores? Which right. a traditional publisher can get you in the bookstores more than a self-published book can. Sure. But- I don't need that. I've been there. I've gone to the bookstore, seen my book there. I've already done that. I don't, I don't need that anymore. Yeah. If you were working on another book, which I haven't talked to you in a while, so I don't know if you are working on another book, but if you were- I am. Remember, I asked you for your permission. Tell me again. I don't want to sell on the air, remember? Oh, shit. Should I text you right now? Yeah, text me right now. I'm sorry. I, my, I'm going to text you the cover. My old man memory is so bad, Michael. I'm just so sorry. Listen, you and me both. I just had Ashley St. Clair on my show this week and I had a list of four things I want to talk to her about. And my producer's like, that was, I, I had her pick one through four and we went through all four of them. And my producer's like, that was a good idea, you know, to have that kind of her pick. I go, it's because I have Alzheimer's. Otherwise I wouldn't remember. That's, it wasn't the kind of like, <laughs> I'm you so sorry. I'm going to feel like such an idiot when this thing comes through. And by the way, I like that we're not cutting this. I'm not cutting this after we're keeping oh, no, this no. in. All right. I'm staring at the text page for well, you. I just so. sent it now. All right. Let's see what it says. Well, there's two. I'm also doing a um, graphic novel that I've told you about. Which oh, I'll, that I'm, I know about. That which I'm I know sure about. you'll help me retweet when that comes out. Oh, I absolutely be, be glad to do. All right. So did you send me a graphic? Because now the, I got the spinning circle. By the way, yes. That graphic novel is there um, an anticipation of it in a way in ego and hubris? Yes. Yes. Okay. Because I I had forgotten about that part of ego and hubris, yeah. and then I saw it. Yeah, it's still, I mean, it'll come through at, at some point. I don't know why I can't Are you, but why do you not, is your, do you have like some kind of weird Obama phone? What is going on? It's a 100K picture. It's not like some kind of. I know, I don't understand. Movie. I don't understand, but this, we'll just see how long people are willing to stay watching this episode. But I almost want to show you the screen, but then people will like blow it up and see what we were talking about. I don't know if <laughs> I want. It's going to be some kind of, like they did with, what was that Kurt, um, that Newsweek commentator? He had a picture of his screen. And when the tabs was tentacle porn. <laughs> I do. I do indeed remember that. Okay. It finally came through. Of course I remember this now. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. 
Yeah, we should talk about that. So do you have a time frame for it? I haven't started doing anything at all. I spent this last year doing the rollout for the white pill. That's another major advantage when you do your own book, by the way, is that when you have a publisher, it's just like a movie. You have the big first week, then you have secondary week, then the third week, and six weeks later, it's done. Whereas with a book like this, which is timeless in the sense that it's not pertinent to contemporary events and that yeah. it's as relevant today as it was in June and in January, I did a year-long rollout. It wouldn't be people could consume each podcast that I was on, have something new. Then I just did Jordan Peterson. It just dropped a couple of weeks ago. And Trigonometry, which I recorded in October, I believe drops next week. Nice. Excellent. All right. So yeah, the, by the way, that is a great topic. It's going to do great. Um, looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it. One thing that's different in this past 10 years is that in just 10 years, maybe even less, people who might have been considered outliers in terms of their ideas have now become, in some cases, some of the leading voices very quickly. Whereas somebody like a Nikki Haley in politics, for instance, tweets something and then the responses are all negative. And you wonder, like, does she have any real supporters, like any normal people who are real supporters? Because there's nobody responding favorably to her. Well, I don't think normal people are on social media, to be fair. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I think this is the case where maybe our supporters are the normal ones. (laughs) But but in terms of like political commentators, the respectable political commentators, somebody like Bill Kristol, yeah, they like him on MSNBC and CNN, but in the general public, I mean, I don't think he's that popular. Whereas- I have done a lot of research and thought as to, and I talk about this, to some extent in the, my book, then you write, how do fringe ideas become normalized and universally popular? And it's a process and people who are right-wing tend to be averse to novelty, right? They're hidebound, they're traditional. It's not a bad thing, it's just a personality trait. It's one of the personality traits that correlates with conservatism. But this is an issue because if they don't know what's three stand deviations from the mean, when it becomes the mean, they didn't see it coming because they're just focused on whatever has been normal. As a hipster who likes things that are on the fringe or on the edge, I'm much better positioned to try to figure out, all right, what's going to be coming down the pike? You know, what can I do with this information? And I think I've done that quite well. How about over the past 10 years? And I just say one more thing. There's also this idea, which I find tiresome, that if you are going to be a radical figure who is in any way become successful and normalized, it must be through nefarious means because the gatekeepers would never let you in. The gatekeepers aren't God. They're not infallible. They're not all-knowing. They're usually not particularly impressive. So if you've seen any, I don't know, Nicolas Cage movie trying to get past that night watchman, it doesn't take that much if you know what you're doing. So that's much more the model than trying to get into Mount Olympus. It's trying to get into like sorority house in a frat movie and steal the bras. It's really not that tricky once you figure out, you know, get them drunk and make sure they're distracted by, I don't know, some puppies. Hey everybody, quick message from Old Woods here. If you're watching me on video, look what I have in my hand. See, look, see this? This is my 16 page print newsletter, the Tom Woods Elite Letter that I mail in the physical mail to people who support The Tom Woods Show. That's one of the 800 zillion benefits you get 
as a supporter of the Tom Woods Show, and it's 100 octane woods. Now, don't write to me and say, well, that's actually not the correct usage of octane. Shut up. You know what I mean. It's full of hot, great, fantastic content, all original, nothing like my amazing email list, all fresh new stuff that you've never read before coming in the mail to you every single month. Isn't it nice every once in a while to read something not on a godforsaken screen? And is there any other content creator out there sending you a physical newsletter in the mail? I think the question more or less answers itself. But as a member of the Tom Woods Supporting Listeners Program, you also get invites to my Christmas party every year and also to my murder mystery dinner parties that I hold all over the United States. Everybody else has to pay hundreds of dollars to attend those. But not you, smart supporter. You get in for free. Not to mention you get to join the Tom Woods Show Elite where you can talk in my no-censorship group to other normal people. Plus, you get transcripts of all the interviews I do and so many other goodies, you're going to feel like a kid in a candy store. So how do you get all these goodies, including, look at this thing. Look at this thing. Look at, look, 16, look at this thing, all right? You get that every single month in your mailbox. How do you get all this stuff? Supportinglisteners.com. You've been thinking, maybe I should do that, right? Today's the day. I am the voice of that angel, the good, you know, the, the good one that's telling you to do good things. That's me right now. So head over to supportinglisteners.com. Be a part of the greatest community in the world. Get more goodies than anybody's given you in the world, as well as my profound thanks. Another institution that, let's say you and I have been quite eager to undermine is the university system in the U.S. Oh, God, yes. And the obstacle that you face there is that so many families think of that as a status symbol. My kid is going to such and such school. Yes. And so you charge me whatever you want. You, you put me in debt. You propagandize my kid. I'm willing to pay all those prices. To, and to they're get not this. always wrong. I mean, look, I've benefited from the elite schools I've gone to, not so much from the knowledge, but it means that it's marginally harder for them to portray me as a, an extremist. Well, he does But have also, the, if you talk to those Nikki Haley supporters and say, my daughter's going to Harvard, you don't need to say anything else. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, yeah, it's absolutely true. But at the same time, so that's one of the things that slows down progress against that. I mean, like we've made way more progress against the media than we have against the universities. At the same time, though, we just saw Claudine Gay, president of Harvard, resign, obviously under duress. Shortest term ever. Shortest term ever. What do you think the significance of that is? Two things. First of all, I love the people who like won't call this a win. It's like, well, they're going to replace her with someone else who's terrible. That's true. The point is they were digging in their heels against her and they were forced to get rid of her. So anytime you're forcing your opponent to do something that they don't want to do, especially publicly, that is clearly a win. Anytime you divide, you know, like uh, if you and I are facing a literal army and we could separate them out into two smaller platoons or whatever the term is and pick those off one by one, that's a very common military strategy. I'm no Napoleon here to know this. So anytime you have division between the ranks of the enemy class, that's also enormously helpful. So right now she's talking, you saw the articles about like, well, black excellence isn't enough. It's like, well, it's maybe the black excellence was the original authors who she plagiarized. Maybe those authors were excellent. That's why she mimicked them without attribution. So also, I don't know if this is from Rules for Radicals, but this concept of force your enemy to play by their own rules. There was this idea, I think, during the George W. Bush years, I don't remember when it was, about 
let's have votes that's going to force Democrats to make difficult votes. So the only example I think of this in the last like 10 years was when they when Mitch McConnell, who is a gangster thug, but who knows how to run his stuff in Washington, said, you know what? Yeah, we're going to vote for the Green New Deal. Let's put up for a vote. And the Democrats just abstained. But like, that's the kind of thing like, oh, you want to force hormones on kids? Let's vote for it. Let's see what we're seeing. So now those politicians are forced to choose between the crazy lobbyists and mom and dad, and they can't win. So things like that, I think, are very good strategies. So I think it is superb. I talked about this in 2020, I think, on Twitter and in other places previously, that in Rand in 1979, when she was on Donahue, said that the universities are the real villains in the picture. And I would ask anyone listening to this, who I'm sure, broadly speaking, shares your love of liberty, if you had to have nine Supreme Court justices, would you rather have nine random senators or even nine random Democratic senators or nine Harvard professors or nine members of the New York Times editorial board? It's not even a question. It's just like, who would you rather pick? So when you realize oh, people, have, boomers for a long time had this idea that the media is the operating wing of the Democratic Party. I think it's quite the other way around. I think the media leads the Democratic Party and the people who are in office often don't have any ideas at all. They just want power or they want some vague sense of helping people or some vague sense of fighting racism or homophobia. But it's the ideologues aren't the universities. And the thing is, they're going to be the most vulnerable because they have tenure. No one ever talks to them, talks down to them because no one knows who they are. It's just some random Yale professor. Maybe he's got a lot of cred within the collegiate community and, and academia. But in terms of the man in the street, the man in the street knows maybe who their senator is and maybe can name some reporters. They don't know who these professors are. And that's why it's going to be absolutely glorious when they are made famous and completely humiliated because not only will they not see it coming, they have no tools to fight back for it. So it's just absolutely wonderful. They are the worst people. They are by far worse than corporate journalists who are worse in many ways than politicians. And, you know, even though I, in some ways I'm sympathetic to people. And that includes you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people like you and people who have decent social media followings have been particularly well-placed to take shots at these people that could yes. not have been taken before. And I, yes. sometimes I fall into despair and I think, what would Michael Malice think about this subject? And let's say 30 years ago, maybe even fewer than that, from what perch would we have launched an attack like yes. this? It couldn't have occurred because the gatekeepers were everywhere. But now yes. we can lob arrows over the gates and that's an yes. advance. And the gates are often open because yeah. as I always point out, you don't need a majority. You only need an alternative. You only need one social media site where the administration is at least receptive to the idea that these people are the devil. And once that's there, that's fine. You don't need everyone else. You only needed, and this, uh, this is just embarrassing how bad of an example it is. You only needed Fox News, who are hardly, you know, Galt's Gulch objectivist ideologues dedicated to liberty to explode the whole Prague socioeconomic media infrastructure. Now they would pray for a day where Fox was the only alternative to the rest of their stuff. Well, again, I'm picking this up here. So in Ego and Hubris, we read a bit about your experience at Bucknell University. Not favorable, no. to say the least. So Correct. the question I'm sure you, you get from time to time is, all right, so I'm a parent and I 
you know, I have a 17-year-old who's, let's say, a 17-year-old whose head is screwed on pretty well and is probably not going to come home a Marxist. But for the sake of career and social advancement, I'd like to send my kids somewhere. What do you recommend they do? Do we try to send them to the most right-wing school I can find, or do I send them to the, the highest-ranked school and just tell them to keep their head down? Do you have advice? I don't know that I'm in a position to give advice to parents because I think that's kind of, it's like, where do I get off? I would simply say that I understood when I went to college that I was there for a credential. For example, I was very interested in philosophy and on my bookshelf right here is the nine-volume Copleston History of Philosophy, oh, wow. which I yeah. read myself when I was at college because I knew, what do I need this professor to walk me through it? Uh, any subject, you're going to have some book that's written very well and that is comprehensive that'll give you a good idea of the subject matter. Paul Johnson, History of the American People. You read that, you're pretty set in terms of... Like, and then if there's like a page or two, like, oh, I want to know more about this, the election of 1876, go read a book about that. Oh, Dred Scott, that's interesting. Go read a book by Dred Scott or the Continental Congress. There's, you can go on those detours whenever you want, but for every subject, there's obviously going to be one, if not many, base books that gives you that one-on-one stuff that you need. So I was there ex explicitly to get a good credential. And when I was a Bucknell, I converted several people. I think I want to say 10, but maybe I'm talking out of my butt. Point being, several people to switch their majors to business majors. Because I said, look, you like psychology? Take psychology courses. You're here to get the best credential to get a job. And people understood that. And, and I'm very glad that I did that. And I'm very glad I convinced others to do that. So if it was my kid, let's put it this way, or my nephew, I would say, if you're going to be paying this money, get the best credential that you have, that you can, the best school on paper. At least years ago, when things weren't quite as bad as they are now, in terms of graduate school, I would get a lot of people saying, well, should I go there and challenge my professors? And I'd say, that, that's, no. that's just hopeless. I mean, you're not going to change their minds. All you're going to do is cause problems for yourself. You can challenge the whole world. As soon as you're finished, you can get on a soapbox and talk to anybody you want. But right now, you go to the best school you can find to get the best credential so that you can go out and do that. But challenging your professor. <laughs> and plus, everybody in the class hates you, you know, and like, you know, And the on. thing is, you and I are ancient grandpas. They have social media now. So make a mockery of that professor publicly. Keep track of everything they say create a dummy account to denigrate them, make sure that they can't figure out who it is, maybe wait a semester, but ruin their lives and ruin their heads at no cost to yourself. What is the upside of yes. yelling at him? It's like if you have a boss, someone in your office, and the guy's a complete putz, and when I did these things, I did them with the intention of, I don't need this job. If I needed that job or that whatever, I really would have had a different approach. This idea that like, is, I hear this all the time. Well, if you're a real anarchist, you'd be in jail. Like, what are you talking about? Like, how is that efficacious? So martyrdom is not admirable, or certainly it's not personally effective in many, most cases. So you got to pick your battles and you have to realize this isn't some kind of honest dispute. They have power, you don't. And they're not going to be glad that you proved them wrong. They're going to be vindictive. They wouldn't be college professors if they had anything to bring to the table. These are small-minded, pathetic people who can't compete in the marketplace of ideas and who know it. Well, that was more or less what I concluded after, <laughs> after yes. going through. I remember one of the, the freshman year, 
I had a professor, Zachary Lockman. I don't know if he's still alive. He, he went to NYU after that. And Zachary Lockman wanted us to get our books from a Cambridge bookstore called Revolution Books. And it was a Maoist bookstore. I mean, that was yeah. what it was. And little indignant Tom Woods, he was not going to buy his books there. Michael Malice, I'll tell you that. But I remember just being horrified thinking, I knew this was a crazy place, but this is just unbelievable Right. what right. goes on. And the idea that I should hold this person in high esteem because of the university he teaches at, you know, you very early on. In but can I say one thing though? Yeah. It also speaks to my point you said earlier. There's no democratic senator who would espouse publicly Maoism. And I know a lot of people think, oh, they're all closet Maoists. They're not. They're closet corrupt. Nancy Pelosi is not a Maoist. Joe Biden is not a Maoist. Even if, you know what I mean? They don't like private property. They're crooks on the take. So this is what I'm saying, how they're so much worse in academia than they are in politics. I'm sorry, John, go ahead. Yeah, well, because the, the academia, because I remember again, like, let's say, when was I there? Like 1990 to 94. There were crazy ideas coming out of the law school and crazy ideas coming out of the classrooms, but they were penetrating into society. So right. it just seemed like it was kind of self-contained and, oh, well, it's crazy here and we'll just make fun of them. But now as the intellectual leaders of our society, if we can call them that, have managed, especially in the law schools, to push, now to push the ideas into society. So like we, we were trying to warn them at the time, yeah, but it just yeah. seemed like, oh, no one's actually going to go along with any of this crazy stuff. But now they have. Yeah. But I mean, I also think more and more people are understanding that this isn't this kind of 1980s Reagan tip O'Neill where we have this big argument during the day and then we shake hands and play golf together. Yeah, no, I'm not well, we don't playing golf with you. Yeah, no kidding. So with my own, I mean, I don't really give a lot of details about my, my own kids, but I'll say one of them, you know them all, but one of them is in a culinary program. And that That's is wonderful. completely straightforward. Like they're just there. We're going to teach you food handling and sanitation. And then we're going to teach you how to bake pastries. And we're going to, that is all it is. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's great. And I'm thrilled that she wants to do something like that. I've never been one of these parents who goes around flashing the kid's report card at everybody. I mean, if you ask me, I'll tell you, they get good grades, but that's not the main thing about them. When you meet and, them, and you, you can see, only be, you can only be so much proud if it's girls. If it was a boy, then of course you're going to be proud of them. <laughs> I have, I have five of them, the oldest of whom is now 20 and the youngest of whom is nine. So I still have most of the spectrum of experience, but every one of them is clever in her own way and makes me proud. I, I can vouch for this having met your kids. By the way, something else that made me very happy. There's this kid, Jaden Rodriguez. I don't know if you know him, that based backpack kid. He's the oh, kid yes. who went to, yes. So he followed me on Instagram. I followed him back. Someone vouched that it was really him. So he really reminds me of what I was like. If you want people to be going humorous and want to know what I was like as a kid, go watch that video when that absolute mediocrity is telling him the Gadsden flag has to do with slavery. And he's just sitting there with this little smirk on his face, knowing that she's just completely stupid yeah. and a horrible person. And also because his mom had his back. So when I saw that video, I'm like, this is like me south of the border. Because he's, he's a, I think he's a mixed indigenous and Spanish descent. But it's just like, this really is what it was like for me in those rooms, that look on his face. Well, there's also a still shot, a photograph of that exchange where the teacher or the administrator is looking at him. And you can just see in her eyes the, I think I'm actually getting owned by a kid. Yes. In yes. her face. And I, it's, but to your point about like arguing with college professors, they're not, they're like, wow, this is so cool. 
she's there like, I have to destroy this kid. Yeah. It's not like, you know, I'm an, I'm an uncle. If my nephew, you know, if I'm trying to trick him with something, he goes, that's not true. And, and he figures it out. I'm impressed. I'm proud. I'm like, this kid is smart. He's learning things. That's not how these people think at all. They're petty and vindictive and nasty, as am I. But I ha- I'm not going to take it out on children. Except when grading their art. Remember you have a friend who did that? Yeah, Maddox. He had a yeah. whole book about it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, all right. Was look, he wrong? Uh, oh, <laughs> well, he grades it on a scale, what, what, from F to F minus? No, F minus to F plus. Oh, okay, okay. He's more liberal than I would be. Okay. So, Your Welcome is your weekly show. Yes. Well, so, one, one other thing. You, you managed to stay front and center out there with just one podcast episode a week, but a very heavy, not even generally social media presence. I mean, I guess you are on Instagram, but your main sure. outlet is formerly Twitter. So what does your like daily routine look like? Do you have one? Oh God, it's really bad. There's a lot of messing around the internet, a lot of consuming. Uh, I read 80 pages a day. So I'm always reading two books at once and it's 40 pages of a serious book and 40 pages of a frivolous book. So it'll be 10 of one and 10 of another. And that's four sessions. I was heavily inspired. Uh, all right, here we go. Tom Woods gets the dirt out of people. You're all right, let's Barbara hear it. There was a movie that, you know how sometimes people, I'm going to take a step back. There was this murder case in the 1920s and the guy who was a killer was hated not for his crime, but because he was like a pariah. And this inspired Ayn Rand to start writing what never happened, a novella called The Little Street, because she found it fascinating that people had less of a problem with him being a murderer than the fact that he was, you know, had, had these other issues. And she's just like, it was just, and this has now become, Ayn Rand was inspired by a murderer. And it's just like, oh, just please let it stop. So in that vein, I was inspired by, okay, a movie called About a Boy starring Hugh Grant, which is an excellent movie. And the premise of the movie is Hugh Grant's dad had written a very popular Christmas song. And as a result of this, he can live off the royalties. He never has to work. So he talks about how his, his day is divided into certain segments, like getting my hair carefully must at the hair salon, three segments, reading a magazine in the bath, two segments, because otherwise he has nothing to do. Now, I'm not like that. I'm fairly productive. But I do have my day divide. Like I'll go online for X amount of time. Then I'll watch a show, read, lunch, online, read, lunch, like that. Go to the gym at night, four days a week, see a friend, blah, blah, blah. So it is structured, but it's not. One of my big issues with having a day job is I don't have the stamina to sit and work at one thing for nine hours straight. And I don't know how people do it and credit to them. Like people who, especially people who do like manual labor for like all day, kudos to you. You get all the credit in the world for me. Absolutely. So that is one of the reasons I have the career I do. It's not because I'm particularly good at it. It's that I just couldn't do the other thing with any regularity. It just drove me crazy. Well, in reading Ego and Hubris, we encounter several different things you did for a living at one time or another. And in general, they, to say the least, did not inspire you. And then to see you today, and you certainly seem to me to be very happy and fulfilled. I feel like, well, you had to go through what a lot of people have to go through, you know, the grind for a while. But, you know, now you've reached a a spot where I think you have to be very pleased. I am. And I'll tell you another, just one thing, which is just you'll find interesting about how the internet works. 
So in 2000, I think for six months, let's suppose nine months, I worked at Goldman Sachs. Okay. Yep. I did tech support, which means there's a group of us, the help desk team, phone rings. It, it had a system how it figured out whose phone would ring. Hello. People had issues with Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Outlook, and a couple of proprietary programs. And I had to be able to, or and me and everyone else on the team had to be able to give me answers or to be like, let me look into this. I'll get back to you. Right. And we, you know, you call someone else on the team, like, what, what should we do here? This has now become, I have been blamed for the war in Ukraine because I worked at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> so for nine months that I did help desk in 2000, somehow, and the other thing was even crazier, and I love bringing this up. I told this story when I was on Rogan once. Someone put on my Wikipedia that my dad worked at Goldman Sachs. The link to which was to a transcript of the Joe Rogan show where I never said or even implied that my dad worked for Goldman Sachs. And now it's, well, he's a trust fund kid whose dad was a vice president at Goldman Sachs. It is the most fat, and you sit there and you try to, it's like you try to reverse engineer. And I've had people argue with me about this to this day. So long story short, yes, I'm responsible for the war in Ukraine and I'll do it again. <laughs> well, the thing is, you are the world's foremost expert on Michael Malice and his life. There's no way you should be arguing this with somebody. But that's the internet for you. Like, because they know you're full of it because they don't like you. So they got you. Yeah, and the more you deny it, well, that's what a guilty person would do, isn't it? I of mean, I, if, hey, if I was responsible for the war in Ukraine because of my Goldman Sachs connections, I would be downplaying it also. Yes, I agree. I agree. So it, in a way, it does seem a little bit fishy, though, the way it's the whole suspicious. thing is. Yeah. I had a thing a bunch of years ago that I'll, I'll let you go. Back in Ron Paul's first campaign, there was some like a kind of conspiracy bulletin board that was suggesting that Ron Paul was part of a Jesuit conspiracy to take over the world. He's not a Catholic even, but the Jesuits, you know, those are wily people. And the, so they had all this evidence. Wait, wait, can, I, can I ask? I have to ask. Yeah. In those cases, they say that someone is Jesuit controlled if they're not actually Catholic. Is that their term? Something I like guess that? that would, yeah, that would have to be it. And then that leads to the question, if you have seen how mealy-mouthed, leftist, pusillanimous the Jesuits today are, nobody could be controlled by them. I mean, really, honestly. I mean, so I was thrown into the, the equation as an example because I was an associate of Ron Paul. And look at me, I'm, I've got a Jesuit background. You know what my Jesuit background is? So I spoke at Wheeling Jesuit University one time, which is no longer called that. It's just called Wheeling. Like it's, they took Jesuit out. But so I spoke there. I spoke there for the Randian Institute for the study. You know, they have an institute for the study of, of capitalism and morality. So I, I was speaking for an objectivist organization that all the Jesuits hated, but that didn't get mentioned. But also they said, well, look, Woods graduated from a Jesuit high school in Wisconsin in 1960. What does that tell you? Well, first of all, Michael, I, you know, I'm not as youthful as I was 10 years ago when we met, but I do not look like I graduated high school in 1960. All you have to do is look. And I think I've been to Wisconsin twice in my life, but this whole thing had been all laid out that I was part of the Jesuit conspiracy to take over the world. But I don't hear a denial. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's very <laughs> clever. Isn't that something a Jesuit would do? Would go through this whole song and dance and then never actually? The, the Jesuit sophistry. <laughs> all right, so I won't even ask. I mean, michaelmalice.com. I don't know. Do you use your website these days for much? No, I, I don't. I have it for my like, media appearances. There's a list there and I'll have like, that's pretty much it. But really it's, what, your so-called X account, like at Michael Malice? 
Yeah, at malice.locals.com for the good stuff. Oh, malice.locals.com. And of course, you can find on any podcast player, You're Welcome with Michael Malice. All right. Well, thanks, Michael. I appreciate it. Well, well, well what is uh, your habit? What's been your favorite part of this interview? Oh, John God, how did I let you turn this around on me? That's why I'm on Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, frankly, I think, even though I could probably point to a few, your, I hate the word rant. I want to remove it from the English language. Sure. Let's just say you're riffing on the universities and professors and being enemies of mankind and all that. That is music to my ears. Because I, 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 And let me ask you, though, can you not agree that we've gone further along in this specific issue in the last five years than you and I would have? If you, five years ago or 10 years ago, when we first met, if we said in 10 years and I had a crystal ball, this is where things would be vis-a-vis the universities in terms of political discourse, you and I'd be like, yep, all right, that's all I'm asking for. Like, that's a reasonable win condition. And I think we've achieved that in 10 years. Have you, do you disagree? No, I absolutely do agree. And the fact that Harvard's reputation could be so damaged yeah. in such a short amount of time. I mean, Harvard became a term of ridicule in yeah. such a short amount of time. And I think it was that hemorrhaging that made the board say, well, we just can't let this continue. I'm sorry, you're going to have to go. The plagiarism thing is the big one because, again, it's forcing them to play by their own rules. And that but, is. You know, but some people say it was nitpicking, that it's not, yeah, it's not a big deal. Even if that is true, in terms of first, like hemming and hawing about genocide in milieu where misgendering someone is literal violence, then on top of that, it's, at a certain point, it just becomes straws. And then that straw breaks the camel's back. At a certain point, it's like, all right, we can only carry so much. The thing is, resource, Margaret Thatcher very famously said the fame problem with socialism is eventually run out of other people's money. At a certain point, you can only carry so much water for someone. So if it's like, it's this, and then there's this. And for all, we, we don't have and no evidence that she was a particularly fun person to work around as well. So yeah. a lot of times people don't appreciate this. When people get canceled, it's not why they're getting canceled. It's because they're horrible and not even an excuse to get rid of them. It's just not at all what they said. It's just like, oh, good. Now I have an excuse to kind of divest myself of this jerk. Judith Regan is a prime example of this in publishing. So at a certain point, it's just like, why are we carrying water for this broad? So that, I think, is just a very, very healthy thing. All right, so check out Michael Malice on all those platforms. I'll have the links in the description or on the show notes page, which is tomwoods.com slash 2439. And you, well, I was going to say you are welcome, but why would I do that? Goodbye, everybody. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.